Welcome to the New England Take and WKXL 1450 AM, 103.9 FM Concord, 101.9 FM Manchester, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. Be sure to get all the back episodes of the show at nhtalkradio.com. And also check out your favorite podcast service. Search for the New England Take to get all your favorite episodes on demand. We're also live streaming our recording sessions at New England Take on Facebook, Twitter, as well as on my LinkedIn if you happen to follow AJ Kirstead on there. I am excited to be joined right now by Johnny Bassett. He's a reporter over at the Granite State News Collaborative, and he's been hard at work on this ongoing series titled Invisible Walls, which has been diving into the uh, – it ended up being all about zoning, essentially, but it's a lot more complex than that when you look at the implications of it. So, Johnny, welcome to the show, and tell me what uh, kicked this off. Thanks very much for having me, AJ. So this project started last summer when we were kind of broadly wondering about redlining, if there were any stories we could do about redlining in New Hampshire. So as you'll remember, that that is a buzzword that gets thrown around a lot now, especially in the national media, but um, but it's not used in a very specific way. And so we weren't really sure what we'd be talking about in New Hampshire. So I looked into it a little bit early on, found that there was uh, one redlining map available for Manchester. But once I started talking to housing experts and we started asking more contemporary questions about uh, the issues that we're seeing today, everybody started talking about zoning. And that's why the project swiftly turned to zoning. And that's what we ended up spending most of our time working on. How did you go about collecting the information to really understand what you were looking at with regards to how zones are developed in um, Manchester is the focus of this project uh, because it, it comes down to how different types of housing ends up in certain areas, what's residential, what can be used for government property, for example. There, there's a lot of uh, moving pieces when it comes to it. Yeah, so we we focused primarily on residential. So I don't know too much detail about the non-residential part of it. But what we did to, to figure out uh, this history was we started collecting zoning maps that the city planning office had published over the last 100 years. So there aren't too many of these available. And uh, for under, totally understandable reasons, the city hasn't uh, kept track of them super well, as in they don't have digital copies of them available for the most part, especially not ones that you could use for spatial analysis. And that's just because the zoning maps that we have now are really the only ones that people tend to think of as important. But for our specific question, when we're wondering about the long term, the long run development of zoning in the city, we did want to know about the old zoning maps. And so what I did is I asked the city planning department, the highway department, I went to Manchester Historic Association. And I got scans of the original maps, and then I started the uh, surprisingly long and tedious process of digitizing those, turning them into uh, shape files. if any of your listeners use GIS, um, turning into data that we could actually do some analysis on. And that's how we could start to see the patterns that we ended up writing about. And what sort of patterns did you begin to see? Uh, I mean, at least looking at the current day, and we'll we'll eventually get into the historical reasons for may, maybe why a lot of the stuff ended up the way it currently is. But how does it look at present day? So right now, the most of the city is zoned for single family housing, and so what that means is that the city um, or that the planning department in particular has set aside um, or continued to allow these parts of the cities to be set aside for single family housing, which means that only one family can stay in the property that's built on that parcel. So single family housing, because it's limiting, it's limited by the number of families you can have on there. 
it's the lowest density form of housing, which means that it requires the most land, which therefore require, which usually means then that it's the most expensive kind of housing available in city. So that's what we see across uh, something. It's more than half of the city right now. I forget the percentage exactly, but it's more than half of the city is reserved for single family. Which is weird. Have- it must be weird when you consider it's a city and ordinarily you think of a city, it's a lot more dense housing situations. Yeah, but, you know, it's New Hampshire, so it's not yeah. like we're in Manhattan. Uh, cities here are a bit more bite-sized, and so mm-hmm. so it's – and Manchester is a big place. It's understandable that you have a lot of variation in the in the uh, kinds of density that the city was trying trying to implement because you, you go across the river. You go to the northwest part of Manchester, for example. That's quite rural. There's a huge park – or a huge reserve there, for example. So uh, totally understandable that, that some parts are single-family and some are higher density. But to answer your question about the overall patterns that we saw, we saw this large ring of single-family around the outside of the city. And then as you moved inside, there was a smaller concentric ring of medium-density housing. Now would be uh, the way that we defined it, two- or three-family housing in the contemporary era that's two- or three-family. And then you have smaller pockets of high-density housing. And those traditionally have mostly been in center city, but to the city's credit, now the zoning map allows uh, multifamily in many more pockets of the city that are not just limited to the downtown. But historically, um, it has looked significantly different than it does today. And what we see today is a variation on a theme, um, but not a wholesale reinvention of zoning. Right. And in turn, when you have just very small pockets where you can have these these apartment complexes where maybe lower income individuals or single individuals may not have families yet or families that are crammed into too small a space, really, uh, it, it, it causes a lot of issues. You end up with a lot of people just in this very small section of the city that experience poverty. There, It breeds issues with uh, drug, drug addiction, ends up being centralized in this one part of town because the housing's cheap and that that's where people are going to end up going and it also in turn causes uh racial disparities within the city as i'd imagine which was your original thesis for going into this well uh it uh, the racial element was not originally what we were looking at because Mm -hmm. we uh, well today you look at the city and uh there is a racial component if you know the history of of the city or you know the history of new hampshire more broadly you know that going back 100 years there was a very very small non-white population so so when we talk about zoning in the city today um we think of it as a as a system of economic discrimination because Mm -hmm. it determines where you live in the city basically uh based on how much money you're willing to pour into your housing and unfortunately because today the non-white residents in Manchester tend to be on the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder that has given it uh, very strong racial overtones but we think it's i mean though at least i mean i'm just a reporter and i'm not a policy person but the way that i think of it is a system of economic discrimination that because of the changing demographics now has racial overtones Looking back in the historical side of this, we've kind of taken a broad look at what's going on presently. There was a, a really, at least for me as someone who's not from the area, a shocking look at what's going on, what happened with industry back in the early 1900s. Uh, can you give an overview? You covered a lot in that article, so I'm not asking you to go over yeah. word everything that was in there, but what happened? Yeah, so, so 
this is kind of the first half of the story that we're telling because overall we break it into two parts one in the first which i'll describe right now is we describe the effect of the amiscade company which was this massive textile company that uh that effectively owned and ran manchester for much of its first uh first century since after incorporation in the 1840s the second half of the story is zoning so what we say is that that the amiscade company really created the economic segregation that we see in the city and then zoning reinforced it zoning didn't create it it reinforced it but your question was about the about the history and about the mill so what the amiscade company did um, was that they they wanted to plan the city out. They were part of this utopian industrialist movement at that time, where they wanted to improve on all of the really squalid conditions they saw in the UK. And so they thought that uh, we'll plan this out and we'll put all of the skilled workers in really nice housing close to the mills. And that's what they did. So if you go down, if you go anywhere near the river by the mills in Manchester, you'll see all this. Uh, very repetitive looking housing. That's all company housing. They built that for the skilled workers, many of whom were American, but some were foreigners. Then what they did, and this is where the segregation comes in, is they they did not allocate housing for the unskilled workers that they recruited. And they needed unskilled workers for all of the more menial, lower jobs in the mills. And that's where they recruited a ton of foreigners. So that's why that's how you get the very large French Canadian population in the city, which now dominate or for a long time has dominated the west side of the city, and that's where you get the Irish and the Polish, uh, Scandinavian, lots of different ethnicities came in, and because the city, because the mill did not give them company housing, but these people still wanted to live close enough to the mills that they could walk to it because there wasn't great transportation back then. That meant that basically the only place they could go where the most desirable place for them to go was just outside the area that was controlled housing, and that's Center City. Center City, then, is where the poorest residents in the city lived starting in the 1840s when the first group of immigrants arrived. And unfortunately, that's still the same pattern that we see today. The poorest residents in Manchester all go to Center City. That's why we say Amiscade created that inequality, but zoning reinforced it. Yeah, large company. They probably had very strong uh, tendrils into how the city operated, into government and everything. They basically p paid for the city with their tax dollars, I'm assuming, not to mention probably some other shady dealings that tended to happen back during those days. Um, it, it's it, Those laws just continue just running through because I'd imagine those populations, even after the mill really downgraded or shut down from what it was before um, – these populations just live there and I'd imagine wanted to protect their communities being the way they were. Yeah. Well, th there was also a, a significant amount of movement within the city. So I don't want to make it sound like they got plunked down there and then they could never get out. Cause what happened is that uh, like the French are a good example. So mm -hmm. the French arrived in the city and they went to center city first. And that's why you have the first, uh, the first churches that, that served the French com Canadian community. Those were all in center city. But then in the 1870s, after the city had built a bridge over to the west side, making it much, much easier to get across over there, they opened it up and allowed the French to move over there. So the French basically decamped from center city to the west side. Many other ethnic groups did that, maybe not to the extent that the French did, but that has created this kind of cycling where as new areas opened up in the city, then the newly arrived immigrants who had saved a little bit of money, they could move somewhere else. Unfortunately, I mean, this is now kind of how I understand it. And again, I'm not a policy person, but 
but today we don't have that we don't have new land that they could open up for uh for residents and so so intuitively maybe not logically because there's probably some stuff that i don't understand about this situation but it makes sense to me that now the poorest residents are stuck there and there is not a safety valve um there's not a way for new land to open up that would be affordable outside of center city and there isn't that industry. I mean, it's not like it was back during the manufacturing days. It's, you see this story over and over across New England where the mills are gone and uh, very few manufacturing jobs exist that would cause this kind of cyclical generational uh, jobs coming through and new populations coming in, some others leaving. It's it's There's a lot of commercial businesses, but it's a totally different um, eco, economic ecosystem from 100 years ago. Yeah, and this—I mean—the city has tried really, really hard to reinvent itself because mm-hmm. the—I mean, the, I've, even though there was a bit of a boom in the city, from what I understand, during World War II, the 1950s and early 1960s, uh, the economy was no bueno in Manchester, and so they worked really, really hard to turn Manchester into a high-tech hub, and they've been pretty successful with that. If you drive down, if you go down the highway and you look at all of the signs that are now on those old mill buildings. It's all tech companies or uh, some college, main colleges and, and tech. Right. So, I mean, that reflects a huge change. And they've definitely got the economy moving. But as you said, it's changed a lot. And, and I think the city is still thinking really hard about how it can improve still in the future because nobody's talking about the New Hampshire economy as uh, booming and nobody's talking about the – I mean, the population is, is uh, it's not increasing very quickly, I should say. You spoke to some people that are in Manchester around this situation. Can you uh, give some examples? Yeah, so the person that we featured in the story is a guy named Anthony Harris and his partner, Shaquanda Allen. So their story, we thought kind of, it was, they're just one couple, but we've heard many, many stories that were similar to this one. So I'll tell you kind of the short version of their story. So Anthony, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, he and his partner were on tough times. So he had gotten out of prison recently, um, and he and he was homeless. And so he and Shaquanda were living out of out of Anthony's car for the first four or five months of 2020. And they were they uh, Shaquanda had a business; she owns a hair salon, and so they they had some money coming in, but uh, they did not have enough to afford an apartment. And so what, as they were homeless, they were saving up, saving up, saving up, trying to get enough for what they thought would be sufficient for an apartment. And then they finally started the search. And so Anthony, uh, because he's trying to leave the life behind, he was looking for anywhere to live outside of Center City. That was an explicit choice that he made, even though he's very tight with the community there. And Anthony's a lovely guy. It's hard not to like him. So he, I'm sure he's got friends everywhere, but he wanted to live anywhere outside of Center City. And so he and Shaquanda looked, uh, they started looking for a two bedroom so they could kind of have a bedroom office type situation. They started looking anywhere outside of Center City. Couldn't find anything that was close to their to their maximum of 1200 bucks a month. So then I thought, well, maybe we can squeeze into uh, one bedroom. They still couldn't find anything close to 1200 outside of Center City. So then they looked in Center City, and they they were looking for two or three bedroom. Nothing in their price range. Nothing in their price range, even for one bedroom. And so what they ended up doing was splitting a two bedroom with a roommate. They have one bedroom and a two bedroom, and uh, they could only get they could only afford that because they got a deal from the landlord. 
they just had a really tough go of it. Right now, they're saving up uh, to get a different apartment. They're in Center City, where Anthony did not want to end up. Um, the housing situation is just really tough for them. So they're still saving up and trying to get into a situation that's better for them. So what's what's being done right now to deal with the situation? I, especially, I mean, I, I, I'm hopeful that your stories getting out there are – Uh, informing the public as to what's going on, hopefully informing lawmakers to use some of the information they may not have necessarily been aware of. I mean, is it is it right now just people becoming informed on the situation? Is it people trying to find solutions to the situation? So right now, the city is in the process of rewriting their zoning for the first time in 20 years. So they they've done this a few times. They did it in 65 and 2000. And now they're revisiting it. So this is actually, uh, we didn't know this when we started looking into this, but this is a, a very good time for us to be talking about zoning and, and trying to add a little depth to the conversation that we have. So I can't talk in very much detail at all about what uh, about how they're trying to change the zoning. We're working on a few stories that we'll get into the, into the, the ongoing process right now. Um, but we know that they're talking about it a lot. And if anybody here is listening from Manchester, you should know that the, that the city wants you to get involved. They want to know what your opinion is on what you want your city to be. And there's an event coming up on March 7th and 8th, I think, that they've called uh, Coda Palooza, which is a pretty goofy name, I think, but, uh, but it sounds kind of fun. And there they're trying – it's a two-day event where they're trying to get everybody uh, who wants to be involved to understand the zoning process and to contribute whatever thoughts they have as to what should be going on. So – I don't know a ton about the policy process. That's what I'm learning about right now and I'm going to write about soon. But that's what's going on as far as I know, AJ. It, it's great to see that they're they're trying to inform the public on. I mean, this is the issue. Is it's It almost feels for, for a lot of subjects easy to consider the national politics because you don't, you don't see it in your day-to-day life. You go, oh, okay, uh, Russia's invading Ukraine. I can't directly do anything about it, but I don't l- – I either – it want us to be supporting Ukraine or don't want to support Ukraine or somewhere in the middle. You you have no honest impact when it comes to what's happening there. When it comes to city zoning, it impacts your day-to-day life, whether it's what businesses are going to be there, what housing is going to be available, uh, what populations may come in or leave your city, which could have large-scale impacts, as we see with our current labor and housing shortage going on. Uh but it can be very complex and hard to understand what's going on. Education is very, very important to this. Yeah, and zoning – zone. I mean, one of the things that became clear as I was looking into this and talking to experts is that zoning is one of the most powerful tools that local governments have to shape their own future, which means that local residents as voters, therefore, that's one of their most powerful tools also. And it would be a real shame if people – neglected that and let decisions get made with so such a powerful tool without their input. So I think it, it's amazing that people have access to this kind of process, and I think they should really take advantage if they're invested. Where should people go if they want to check out your series? So uh, we're lucky because we're part of a large network that you can find uh, our stories published in a lot of outlets. But, if you, uh, but the easiest way is to go to collaborativenh.org. And uh, there you'll find a page for the Invisible Walls series, and that's what we're calling this one. So collaborativenh.org. Johnny Bassett, reporter with the Grand Estate News Collaborative. Thank you so much for, for joining me today and for writing about this very important story. 
Thanks very much for having me on, AJ. It was great talking to you. You're listening to New England Take on WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kirsted. We'll be right back.